0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to In My Heart, a podcast truly about all the things in my heart and finding our freedoms. I'm your host, Heather Thompson. My next guest, Josh Takeman, is an entrepreneur at heart. In his early career, he co-founded Bad Boy Entertainment alongside Sean Puffy Combs, spearheading endorsements, cross-promotional opportunities, and partnerships with outside artists from Jay-Z to Lauryn Hill, Eminem, Busta, 50, and more. Working closely with Sean Combs, Josh was also pivotal as a force orchestrating his non-music-oriented ventures, including creating the infamous White Party, leaning into Sean John Clothing, Where I Met Josh, and the beautiful Lincoln Sean John Navigator. He's also an executive producer of Netflix's recent documentary, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. Today, Josh focuses on eBoost, his natural, ready-to-drink wellness beverage company, and he's an active investor leveraging his experience to up-and-coming CPG brands and disruptive companies. He's been a friend for over 20 years. Wow, how did that happen? And he's in my heart. Welcome, Josh.
1: Hey, Heather. How are you? Great to see you.
0: It is really nice to see your face because I feel like this is... One of the longest times, and when we go back a long time now, like 20 years or something, I mean, I can't even believe that happened that quickly, but, you know, and it has been a beautiful friendship because it's blossomed over the years, growing past a, you know, kind of a professional friendship into a friendship and then to our families, you know, who are growing fast, right?
1: (laughs) Our kids are teenagers
0: (laughs) already. I mean, what the heck? We're like going on two lifetimes here
1: it's scary how fast time goes. The first first 30 years in life go by really slow. And then the the next 30 are like compounded.
0: Yeah. I wonder if it has to do, it has to be a part of aging because me and all my peers, we all are like, wow, time flies. And I remember my parents saying how quickly I was growing up or all parents say how quickly kids grow up. But I feel like time is exponentially faster than it was in the fifties for some reason.
1: Without question. Without question. Well, we have more distractions than we've ever had before. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, so anyway, it's been a long time since I've been able to, you know, touch and hug and kiss you in the flesh and your kids and Kristen. So let's just catch up a little bit on the family. How is everybody for listeners? I know, but tell, tell everybody how the kids are, how old they are and what's been cooking with you for those people who know you from the housewives.
1: Uh, so the start of uh, COVID, we decided to make the transition and move to Los Angeles. Um, it was more of a personal decision, family decision. My parents live there. You know, they're getting a little bit older. They're still young at heart, but, you know, 80 is is, is not on uh, the front side of life. Yeah. So I thought it was important for my grandchildren to be close to them so they could spend more time with them. And I have a very close relationship with my family. My sister lives there. She has two kids. They're almost the same age as mine. And my older sister kind of bounces in between Southern California and wherever she's working so strong family foundation there weather change lifestyle change and being in new york for over 20 years it was just ready for a little bit of a a pivot and so it's a different lifestyle definitely slower so it's taken a minute to get used to it's been great for the kids because outdoor sports activity all those things were fully up and running um, once we moved and you know they both kind of already had a foundation of friends through their cousins and it's been a nice change. And Kristen and myself go back to New York quite a bit. So we still get that flavor of New York and get that that energy that we you know so badly love about New York. And then we get to come back and um, decompress and move back to LA. So it's right. a nice balance.
0: That's nice. And I, I know um, over the years, you guys have moved a little bit back and forth. Mostly you're, you know, you born and raised in in LA, Kristen born and raised on the East coast, right. In in Connecticut. And then you, Pulled her back to the West Coast at one point, kicking and screaming a little bit, you know, so East Coast, West Coast. But now in speaking to her, she has found her stride really there. And she uh, living in L.A. and and just to speak for her. And, you know, I had her on the podcast, too. I think she really loves having the East Coast, West Coast lifestyle now and isn't drawn to just one or the other.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I think it took a second for her to get, she's all about routine. And so now that she has her doctor, she has all the things that are important to her in terms of that gives her that comfort. Um, she's kind of checked all those boxes. So I think she feels more at ease and feels like she has her important things that, you know, mechanically are important to her in her day-to-day life. So, yeah, and that gives her the um, confidence to be able to kind of like tackle every day.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, she, she's doing great and she's looking great and her website is doing so good. Last night's look and all the stuff that she started. But let's go back a little bit and digress to what drew you to the East Coast in the first place and how you got your start with Bad Boy. And let's let's, let's go back to the uh, early days a little bit.
1: So I had never been to New York um, and it was funny. The whole reason I wanted to go to New York is because you know another dear friend of both of ours, John McDonald, when I was living in San Diego, He came out there and he was living in New York and he, you know, he had a little bit of a, you know, New York attitude. And I was raving about this club that we were going to go to in San Diego. I'm like, you're going to love it. It's the best place ever, the best music, the most beautiful girls. And I literally, we got him right in, we got the best table and he looked around he goes, is this it? And I'm like, yeah, it's great. Right. And he goes, this is lame. I'm going home. I'd rather be home asleep than be at this club. And I literally like talk about deflating. I'm like, but then I go, fuck. If this is lame, I wanna see what's great. And right. so, in the back of my mind, is like, I gotta to go to New York because John McDonald said the greatest place in the world I thought was the lamest place he's ever been. I wanna go experience what he's experiencing. So, oh, well,
0: he's having. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: there came an opportunity. Uh, when I was working in Los Angeles to go to Washington DC for a trade show, I was working for an entertainment marketing company. And I'm like, my, a buddy of mine was modeling in New York. So he's like, come visit me before you go to DC. So I was there. And literally within two days being in New York, I'm like, I have to move here. Yeah. And my other buddy goes, if you're here within 30 days, you can stay at my apartment as long as you want for free. And I'm like, I'll take that deal. And I literally got I literally went home, quit my job, collected like four thousand dollars in commissions, moved out of my apartment in Santa Monica, returned my lease car, dropped all the stuff off of my parents' house and got a one way ticket to New York. I think I was there in 15 days.
0: That is so exciting just to hear that story. I mean, and what an exciting time it was back then. So you hit New York. Take it.
1: Yeah. So I'm 24. I had maybe $4,500 to my name. I'm sleeping on a parquet floor in a, in a loft building in little Italy. And it was truly parquet. I mean, I think I had a sleeping bag. Uh, so I wasn't sleeping in the most comfortable environment, but I had a free roof over my head. Yeah. And the irony is I ended up buying a building in that same building. An apartment oh, in that I same building.
0: That. If you could make it here, baby.
1: Exactly. So I didn't really have a job and I wanted to get back in the music industry, but it was ironic because I was too proud to be an assistant, but not really qualified to be anything more than an assistant. Mm-hmm. Cause I worked at a label when I was in Los Angeles. So I'm doing all these interviews. It's like, great. You could be an assistant. I'm like, I don't want to be an assistant. I want to be a product manager. I want to be in the marketing department. And I kept hitting brick walls. And then I ended up taking a couple of jobs that I just didn't like. And then I was in Florida at a tennis tournament working for Hugo boss. Cause my friend worked there. So I was just helping her. And it was like a free two weeks in Florida. And I met uh, this kid, Jeff Burrows, that was just taking the president job at bad boy. And I met him for like an hour. We hung out a little bit, nothing more than that. And I'm like, that's where I want to work. I want to work at bad boy. I want to basically do what Steve Rifkin was doing at SRC, create a marketing company within a record label to con- do, to be basically the connective bridge to corporate America, brands, endorsements, marketing, basically educate, give them a pathway that they could find a credible way to connect with the urban lifestyle and audience through, you know, a very um, valid source of connectivity. So I had actually met with Rifkin and he gave me like two seconds and he's like, Nope, don't have a job. I'm like, but ah, blah, 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 blah. He's like, Nope it was the worst meeting of my life. I think he said no three times. And that was all he said to me. So I left there and I'm like, fuck, I got to find another option. And so literally the, then the door, then that was after Florida. So I'm like, what am I doing? Bad boy. I could build the same thing that Rifkin has a bad boy with puffy. And he wasn't an artist yet. He was still just a producer. Yeah. And I'm like, but this guy is the hottest guy in the industry. He's got the best talent. You know, he's a lightning rod. Um, and so I cold called Jeff and I said, I have an idea to basically do what SRC is doing, but under bad boy, create bad boy marketing. So he said, great. He said, we'll put together a plan and we'll sit with Puffy and share it with him. So we put together, I put together my version of a business plan. We meet with Puffy. I'm nervous, right? Cause I've, I've been following him for 10 years, you know, as a producer and when he worked for Uptown Records and producing Jodeci. So I'd, I'd always been intimately aware of, of the music and the scene. And so I put together my thing and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then at the very bottom, I put $2,000 a month. And he's like, what's that? And I go, I just want to show you how committed I am. I only want to take $2,000 a month just to pay my rent and get like a bagel and some water every day. And he's like, fuck you. I ain't paying you shit. I go, well, how do I pay my rent? He goes, that's not my problem, playboy. That's yours. He goes, you eat what you kill. If you want to do this, you eat what you kill. And that's it. And I literally left the meeting like optimistic in one way. So like the doors open, but like deflated on the other, like, well, how am I going to pay my bills and survive?
0: I got a job, but it doesn't pay anything. Yeah,
1: it's not really a job. and exactly. It's not really even an internship because at least at an internship, I get free lunch on Fridays. You can yeah. say anything about you free lunch deep. on
0: Friday. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> I, just, I just looked at myself. I said, this is a rare opportunity and you just got to go for it. If this is where you really want to be and create something, then you just got to roll up your sleeves and believe in yourself and make it happen. So I called Jeff and said, I'm in. I said, give me a desk and a phone. And if I need you you know, Jeff to come on the meeting, then please support me. He said, all right. Then I walk into the office and I remember the first day on 19th street, I got there. Jeff said, meet him there at 10 o'clock. I got there at like 9:30. I'm waiting, not a soul in sight. It's like 1015, not a soul in sight. It's like 1030, like one other intern, like showed up and is sitting downstairs in the elevator. Cause no one has the key to get up. Now it's like 11 ish. And there's three or four people like lounging downstairs and the office manager, Kibo still hasn't shown up. And Jeff sure as hell hasn't shown up yet. And then, so by like 1130 comes, they finally let me up. And so I finally sit with Jeff um, and I'm like, all right, I'm in, let's go. And then, so he walks me around. He's like, um, oh, you can sit here in the mailroom. So he sat me a groovy lose desk. So I live in the mail room with an
0: icon for anybody who worked at bad boy, uh, you know, or any, any, any relationship with puffy new groovy Lou. So go on. (laughs) So
1: so I'm sitting in, in this teeny little mail room with two desks, a fax machine and like a half a desk and the mail room. So there's just boxes and random shit everywhere. And so I think I have a desk right until two days later, groovy Lou shows up and he's like, Hey, who are you? You're at my desk. So I don't have a desk. And thankfully, he was kind enough to share his desk with me. So I had half a desk and I had a phone that only dialed out, but you couldn't get a return phone call in because the line was always busy. So I'm literally. <laughs> Were
0: you guys like even a subsidiary of BMG yet? Was that? Yeah, so was you're a in a little tiny air, corner exactly. of BMG's offices no, this is, somewhere. This
1: was on 19th street. It was our own standalone oh, office. Before
0: you moved to the big building.
1: Exactly. And so literally. the. That's where
0: was, I moved into the big building. Yeah, we got all the samples uh, stolen all the time.
1: Yeah. on 44th or 43rd. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was um, a rude awakening to go in. And then it was literally just survival mode. So I just, I quickly had to figure out how do I make some money so I can eat? Yeah. And thankfully, like the very first deal I did was Puffy, unfortunately, Biggie had passed away. Yeah. And Puffy had did a tribute song called Missing You. And literally overnight, he's like the number one artist on all music formats. Yeah. And so now he's no longer a producer and record label owner. He's the number one artist in the country. Yeah. So that happened so fast. And I was right there at the epicenter for that. And so now he's announced he's doing a national tour, Puff Daddy and the Family. Yeah, And I'm like, great. And I'm like, who's who's sponsoring? He's like, what's that? I'm like, you know, like R. Kelly has Budweiser's, the sponsor. He's like, I don't know, go get me one. So I literally cold called the VP of, of marketing at Pepsi. And then he kicked me down to the director of marketing, Kinetta Bailey. And miraculously, I got a meeting with her and miraculously, I got him like close to a million dollar check to be the title sponsor.
0: Incredible. I mean, you are when I when I listen to this story, which I haven't heard you tell in some time, it just reminds me of like how hungry we were. There was no barriers. There was no fear. You know, it was just like, no building was too, too tall, you know? And I love that. And I miss, I miss that energy today that we had in those early years of, you know, when I enter me into the Sean John time, and we'll get to, we're going to talk about it later about, you know, what's changed a little bit in the industry. But so it was such an exciting time. So you, you, you hit your first deal and you were able to say to him, okay, yo, now I'm starting to deserve a check. Like show me the Benjamins baby. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And of course, I never got paid on that deal.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. Of course. By the Benny- way, Groovy Lou stole my seat at the CFDA DA Awards. I'll tell you yeah. that story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of <laughs> the course. Council yeah.
0: of Fashion Designers of America, we were nominated for Best Designer of the Year. And I yeah. walk in to sit in my seat, which are like thousands of dollars a ticket, yeah. and Groovy Lou's in my seat. And I had to go find a place to sit. Thank God, Calvin Klein let me sit next to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, amazing. But well, you got it. But you have to be flexible in that situation. You you have to just be able. You have to be a survivor, and you yeah. can't get upset. Working with to, puppy
0: taught me that for sure. Yeah, you gotta survive. Going, all
1: right, quick pivot. Where do I go? That's it. Who's seat am I gonna keep steal?
0: Making it happen. Yeah you know, to keep, you know, with the touchdown or whatever, you know, with the ball. Um, By the way, what a great halftime show was that? We got to get into that, too, from the Super Bowl. Was that the most incredible halftime show? Did you love it?
1: Amazing. It was great.
0: Amazing. And Mary, oh, my God. She is just amazing. I love Mary. Okay, so so early on, for those people that are listening, what's so exciting about this is this is way before uh, the Kardashians were still figuring out Nair and razors for their legs, like. You know, you, what Josh did at Sean John and what I mean, what he did at Bad Boy was literally paved the way for endorsement deals for celebrities to endorse and own their own businesses left and right. I mean, people, celebrities didn't do that back in the day. Can we talk a little bit because, you know, you had the Lincoln Navigator for Sean John. You started the white parties. You started as a brand puffy that yeah. was the first time people were branding themselves necessarily outside. Oh, I'm an actor, so I brand myself. But really, you know, this is the two-way pager hadn't even come into existence yet. So social right. media was way in the future. So take us through some of that and how, how that worked compared to today or how it maybe paved the way for today.
1: Yeah, well, I think like I think it all started when Puffy bought his house in the Hamptons and uh, he threw his first party and I literally just started. So I was only known as the white boy. Like, yes. yeah, yeah, Jeff, you and the white boy, and so he does this first party, and it's like Funk Master Flex, and like Mike Tyson's walking around the party like with a chicken in his hand, and it's like literally, it's a party that he could have thrown in Harlem, right? It, it was, but sh- it was
0: in the Hamptons, which everybody has to remember. There weren't a lot of black right real estate owners yeah, in the Hamptons course.
1: at the time, of course. And so, and it was a fun party. I mean, it was yeah. it was buck wild. It was it was like a music video for like an Onyx song. He's like everyone never wild not that a fun fun party. party.
0: I mean, he's never not thrown a fun party. Yeah.
1: And so he comes up to me and he goes, hot party, right? And I kind of looked at him because I was kind of disgusted too. I'm like, here you have this beautiful new home, but no one is respecting your property.
0: Right. You got chickens People are running littering, around. yeah.
1: People are in your closet. People are just treating that house like it's their house, but with no respect. Right. So it's kind of like, if you're gonna be in the Hamptons, like use this as a platform to like level up. Not like that party exists in New York city with your crew and their crew and their friends and the chicken heads and whoever, whoever, but this is an opportunity to like integrate yourself into a whole new community of business people that can elevate you into other directions that you never even fathom. So the next day he picked up on it quickly. And he said, yo, Jeff, you and that white boy get over here. And we <laughs> he go over there and he's like, I asked you if you thought it was a hot party and you kind of shook your head a little bit. And I said, what I just told you, I said, I just think that, you know, you're now in the Hamptons, like there's some of the wealthiest humans in the world here that have incredible businesses that you could potentially plug into in some way, shape or form. Like that party exists in New York city. If you're going to throw a New York Hamptons party, like elevate it, like make it cooler, sexier, like a a more sophisticated crowd, like, and people that respect your property and respect, you know, and, and, and meet a whole new group of people. He's like, all right, you do the next party. And so it was probably the best thing that happened to me because now all of a sudden, you know, now he's focused on me and Jeff. And I said, all right, the only rule is you can't invite anybody. You can't even know about this party because if you do, then these people are going to be pissed at you that you didn't invite them. So you have to let me and Jeff just run point on this and you just pretend like you know nothing about it. Right. Right. That's the only way you won't catch, you know, flack from these, your friends of long periods of time. And they're not going to get invited. Trust me. Those guys are not welcome at this party because that's not the party that we're creating. Right. He's like, all right. All right. And then he gave us a hundred thousand dollar budget.
0: Wow. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, which, you know, for him is like, he doesn't like giving budget. No, right?
0: that's why I'm like shocked, actually. Yeah. I'm in a bit- and, then
1: Jessica, <laughs> and then Jessica Rosenblum was producing it. Yep. So me, Jessica and Jeff were kind of like the masterminds. And so we started talking he about it. He was with you
0: guys that early, Jessica. Okay, wow. Yeah. She did yeah. every party after that too, by the yeah, way. Yeah,
1: and before. I mean, she was with him forever. Yeah. And so I said, well, it's really easy. I'll just go to the top five promoters. They each have to bring their 30 best girls. They can bring two guys for every 30 girls they bring. And let's think about who are the top people in the Hamptons that we want at this party. You know, it was Ron Perlman, you know, it was obviously like Russell and Andre and and
0: Russell Simmons. Yeah. And that kind of like crew that's already out there. Yeah. And
1: we literally like put curated a really great guest list. And, and then he kept calling. He's like, we need a theme. We need a theme. And it was his idea to do white. He's like, everyone has to wear white. And I'm like, great idea. It's a white party. So this guy's calling me every night. Like what's up with the party. So I went out and got sponsors I got like Diageo to give me 60 grand and all the free liquor.
0: Oh, that early on. So Diageo, for those of you who don't know, uh, owns Ciroc, Puffy's Mm -hmm. big vodka push and which is his tequila.
1: I got like Haynes to give me 10 grand and all the t-shirts in case someone didn't bring it. I got a couple other spots. I got like $80,000 in sponsorship, like all the Pierre Jouette champagne for free. Yeah. So we weren't really using any of the budget. Right. And he's like, what do you mean you got that much money for them? For what? I'm like, for presents. You know, they get four people they get to bring four people and they're gonna give us all the liquor for free and, yeah. and a check. He's like, and a check? I'm like, Yeah, it's association. We're raising their profile. Ooh, like this is gonna good, be the hottest party. This is gonna be the hottest party in the world. Like they all want to be a part of it. Yeah. So I kept talking about it. Like this will be the ultimate party. And we had like Mark Ronson and Q Tip DJing and yep. Leonardo. Like it was just a great. It like all things came together that night. And I would arguably say it was one of the greatest evenings of my life. I had so much fun, and it went to like six in the morning.
0: Yes. And then there were, I mean, I wasn't at the first one, but I was at maybe the second, the third. Damn, I mean, I was really yeah. in the early ones and they just got bigger and better thereafter. My white party experiences are some of the very best nights in my life. Some of my my, my clearest memories of partying and just having the best time and being in this electric atmosphere. And we were also, and we all worked, by the way, too, at well, these parties. We partied and worked at the same time. When you worked for Puffy, you... We're always on the clock.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, he would he would tear me apart during the party. Where are the girls in the pool? Why aren't the girls in the pool yet? I'm like, not I'm not the wrangler for the girls in the pool. Right. You booked them, get them in the pool now. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, girls, get back in the pool. <laughs> so yeah. So-
0: <laughs> okay, girls, back in the pool. Yeah. Oh my God, that is so funny you're bold as shit. And I love that. Like Puff would call me gangsta because when I was with him, I didn't care who he was. I had a job to do that. I wanted to get done and I wanted to do it well. And so I was yeah. never enamored as well, as much as I loved him and I was impressed by him. I was never enamored in that way. It was like, no, we got work to do. And you were always very much the same. And you stood out to me as a beacon, not because we were two of the only white people on the staff, but like I remember, I I remember first meeting you um, so vividly. So let's go back to a little bit about how all of that excitement was happening and how that has shifted in today's marketing with social media and that change. So take us through some of that pivot.
1: Yeah, I mean, think. I mean, really, what Puffy was doing back then, and the thing that I quickly identified is. I like you on fashion trends. I just, I just, I had my antennas up all the time. So I just kind of like could quickly see what was happening, what trends were formulating and percolating. And then what was the driver of the trend? Right. So back then MTV was the driver of trends.
0: Right.
1: Right. That was, that was the media, the most consumed media for pop culture. So we didn't have the Us Weekly's, the Touches. There was maybe People Magazine and Sports Illustrated. But really, MTV is where all the trends were coming out of. Right. So as soon as he became the number one artist, he was dominating the MTV airwaves. So I'm like, this is free advertising. Like when he wears his hat to the side and it's a Cincinnati Reds hat, the next day, everyone is wearing a Cincinnati Reds hat. No one had to one the decide. day before. And right. then they're all wearing it to the side. Right. And I'm like, Yo, oh, this kid is really, he's, he's driving change and he's driving trend. So the first real deal was he had a licensing deal set up with Tommy Hilfiger. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do a deal with Tommy Hilfiger. It's a royalty deal. I get 10%, blah, blah, I go. I said, the only bad news there is when it, the deal goes bad for whatever reason, like you're not hot anymore, you're not hitting your sales number, then it goes away. Right. And really Tommy is the one getting all the equity you're building the equity and Tommy Hilfiger. It's a sub brand, but like, why don't we just go create your own brand? Let's go find a partner. Cause you're the lightning rod. You're the tip of the spear. You're the one that ever wants to, you know, you, you create all this millions of dollars in free media value. Let them be use their best at in making the product, distributing it, funding it. And you just be what you do best at and that's marketing. Yes. And so sure enough. And I, I can't take credit for finding the partner. I think Benny found the partner, um, so, of course, I didn't get to participate on it, even though I helped you know, ch- change the dynamics of what the direction was. Uh, but then that was the first model. And I said, everything we do has to be a 50-50 joint venture. You have to own at least 50% because you are delivering the biggest piece, and that's the marketing.
0: And that was the birth of Sean John Clothing. So instead of wearing Tommy's stuff, who was hot at the time anyway, and making it hotter yeah. Um, and endorsing Tommy, Josh, you know, convinced him to launch his own fashion label, which he did, Sean John. And at the time, there was Cross Colors, there was FUBU, and there was Fat Farm. I think had a little yeah. bit of uh, toe in the sand at the time, and that was what was out there for an urban customer, you know, and and particularly for us, Bias us stood for you know clothes for us, FUBU stood for clothes for us by us, because there was a, a real lack in the, in the marketplace for clothes that spoke to a black and brown person and their culture and what they were feeling. And so it was a really awesome time for Puffy to step out and be a real contender who was serious about making a mark. And, and that's exactly what we did.
1: Yeah, but you also, but what his genius and your genius was like, I don't want to be them. I want to be, be Calvin Klein. right. So he's like, how do I, how do I keep my uh, authenticity in this market? But like, I want to be, I want to have suits. I want to be that's sexy. That's I want right. you to be able to dress it up. I want you to have like that, that, um, velour tracksuit that no one had. That like,
0: was the best.
1: Yeah. So he put a spin on everything, the puffer jacket. Like yep. he had real iconic pieces in Sean but then that's he also right. wanted to be very fashion forward and have an edge to it.
0: Well, and that was the that was the pivotal point, I think, in him hiring me and me coming on was just like you saying to him. But wait, you got to think about it this way. It was like, what do you dress in every day? It's not just jeans and and sweatshirts and hoodies. You're wearing Gucci. You're wearing Versace. You're wearing designer clothes. You're wearing the best of the best. So we need to offer you to people like I. Puffy was my muse the whole time I was there as his creative director, yeah. designing yeah. clothes. At house. So We that's why the suit license, and that's why the things that we got, were we were able to expand. But first, yeah. we did it all in-house. We didn't license yeah. anything out until we made it ours and made it stand for what we stood for. And what was exciting was he was so exciting and controversial and always, like you say, a lightning rod, that as muse, he gave me so much material to work with. You know, so when he was, you know, charged for that, we- you know, that weapon firing in the club I and mean, we yeah. had to put we put that in the fashion show. I put that edge and, you know, yep. we put that kind of gangsta appeal and everything. But yet still it was in fur and cashmere and beautiful silks and gorgeous yep. suits. So what was cool about Sean John is that. Puffy's peers bought the clothes off the shelf the way it was. It wasn't like we made his in leather and we everybody else got, you know, pleather.
1: Yeah. Everything was
0: authentic to the brand and to him. And that's why we were wildly successful. I mean, we built such a huge, we we won fashion awards. That's the CFDA award where Groovy Lou took my seat. (laughs) Best menswear designer, best designer of the year, all these things. And the fashion industry really took note of us and Andre Leon Talley, rest his soul. cal ruttenstein these guys and tommy tommy even though puffy didn't go with tommy and endorse him tommy was so supportive of yeah. puffy launching his own label these guys were pivotal in the launch of sean john
1: well think about it fucking puffy was on the cover of vogue
0: yeah
1: right the, the first cover
0: of Vogue.
1: i mean think about how historical that was this is yeah. back in 90 in the late 90s i remember yes. in, we did the fashion shoot in paris with naomi and kate moss and so it's funny. So when we were launching, well, you know, w- when you guys were really launching Sean Ja, but the role I played, I got to kind of put my fingers in everything and everything. have a seat at the table in some capacity. And we were talking about Sean and John on the launch. I'm like, well, we should launch it at f- Paris Fashion Week. He's like, what's that? Yeah. And I'm like, you don't know Paris Fashion Week? That is the ultimate playground for f- global fashion. He's like, really? I said, that's where we have to launch it. And he goes, but we don't have anything to bring. I'm like, let's just make t shirts that say, like, New York, Paris, London, Tokyo, <laughs> and hats. And we literally went there with like fifteen dollars Sean John hats and like beef, you know, Hanes T T shirts that just had like New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, and that's all we went out there with. And then I got him a seat in the front row at all the biggest shows. Yes. And he literally had never been to Paris Fashion Week. He had no idea. We took over Bandouche and did the greatest party.
0: Ah, Le Bandouche—that's one of the best nightclubs in Paris for those people. Oh, who I mean, are, he had know. Madonna,
1: uh, Naomi Campbell. Like everyone in Paris was fighting to come into this party. I remember like it was yesterday, and we basically ghettoized Paris Fashion Week.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, and it was it made it exciting, you know what I mean? Because it was so mundane and it was so much of the same and routine. Yeah. He really brought, you know, uh, disruption.
1: He did. And and all of a sudden after that, then everyone else started wanting to go. In. But he was without question the first person to, you know, make his finger pr- put his fingerprints all over Fashion Week in Paris and make a big. Elevate the experience and create parties that didn't exist and bring a whole next. Totally, and inspire
0: greats like Alexander McQueen, rest his soul. You know what I mean? There's so many of these people I'm talking about who are no longer with us. It's so sad. But like, I remember Alexander McQueen like coming up to me, like, so excited about what we were doing. And, you know, sitting in the front row of these fashion shows with Puffy that I was, you know, I was a designer at Calvin Klein. I was, you know, doing jeans at Ralph Lauren, you know, things like that when I met him. But, you know, the best I got to see, even though I was in Calvin Klein collection over runways is like, they forgot a dress and I had to fly it to Italy and then turn <laughs> around and go, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. so
1: You're like messaging. you,
0: exactly like you, Puffy gave me an opportunity to step into shoes that maybe I didn't have the resume to fill, but I definitely had the chutzpah and the guts to fill and go for it. Yeah. And he knew that yeah. and he read that in people because it was yeah. just like who he was. You know, yeah. I mean, I think God started with a check, but yeah. <laughs> but I had to I had to prove a lot. That's for sure. And he taught me what to know what I was made of. That's what I'm always so grateful to my time with Puffy is that he really showed me what my, I was made of myself. He pushed me as hard as anyone could ever push me. And I never, never broke. I bent, but I didn't break. And, and he knew that and we did great things together for that.
1: Yeah. That's his genius. His genius is that he knows how to optimize people. And and for them to break through barriers that are just self-set, right? He's like, there is no barriers. Like you can accomplish anything. I mean, it's all it's I mean, he's just he's just so dead set on what he wants that he just forces everyone around him to figure it out and, and get to that end point.
0: A hundred percent. It's It. it is quite incredible to be around him. So so after Bad Boy, because we could make this whole podcast about it because it's such a historical yeah. moment and working with yeah. Puffy and being exposed to what we were exposed to. Um. But you, when you after Bad Boy, you founded your own agency, Buzztone. And I really remember when you founded that agency because you were at the cutting edge of so many things. Like I remember, you, first of all, talk about a hard worker and someone who's a million miles an hour. That's you, Josh. Or you're always cranking your Rolodex. You always have ideas. You're always working all the angles. And so now you're working for yourself and you have, you have clients. And I remember you had like, Royal elastic sneakers, which had just launched and you were out there in these like bus vans of sneakers that were like these whole cool shopping experience. So I want to talk a little bit about your genius in some of the new marketing plays that you were able to take into you know your new space at Buzztone, and then i want to talk about how you really focused on energy and recovery because you've always been a workout you've always been very athletic and you take care of your body and you know you love sports so you've been active at that so even though you were in the music industry and marketing, you found health and wellness through your own personal needs. So I want to talk a little bit about buzz tone and then your transition into wellness and you're, you're realizing that there was a white space for, uh, your one of a kind drink that you invented.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I left Puffy because, you know, he kept hitting all these legal challenges, which were messing up all the deals that I had. Yeah. And um, And then I just got to the point where like, you know, maybe I should just go do this on my own. And I basically was doing what I was doing at Bad Boy Marketing, and created Buzztone. And I and I had a partner out of LA, and we were really, you know, at the intersection of brand and pop culture, you know, creating, you know, unique experience and relationship. Our idea was to create a better relationship between the consumer and the brand or the product or whatever it was. And just, I, I always had an authentic lens of like, what's, what is going to authentically resonate with this audience, and like, how do we be that bridge to do that. So, you know, I like I had Bacardi flavors. They were a client of mine. So I was super early on product placement and music videos. And I would go in and support the record labels. So I'd set up like Friday happy hours and I'd bring food and I'd bring bartenders and we bring liquor and I would just help curate these experiences that was no cost to them. I was using my relationships to get that access, but I was always about giving value to the other side and it wasn't about having banners and like signage it was about like authentically having a seat at the table right. so you're you were you were truly built into that atmosphere and you look like you belong to be there
0: yeah it was it was uh, actionable it wasn't fluff
1: yeah exactly uh, you weren't a plus uh, like one like a
0: lot of what we're going to talk about as we move into today's culture and marketing yeah. cuz I did want to talk yeah. about present yeah. day
1: you're actually on the list you weren't a plus one uh- <laughs> So, so I was doing a lot of that. And then all of a sudden Kanye starts rapping about Bacardi flavors, you know, but I knew like my very first gig, I had a gig with Red Bull when I worked at bad boy. They're like, there's this new product from Austria. We'll I remember.
0: give you,
1: they're like, we'll give you $2,000 a month and an expense account. If you go to a club and buy it, if they have it, and then as much product as you want just to give away. So I literally would go to every recording studio and give them a refridge and unlimited amount of Red Bull. They had no idea what it was. It was like crystal meth in a can. Yeah. And I literally seeded the whole music industry. And then all of a sudden these guys, oh, we need more. We need more. We need more. And then all of a sudden, all the parties I did with Puffy were all sponsored by Red Bull. So we'd have, you know, the barrel on the table and we're mixing Red Bull and vodkas. And that's really kind of like how it started.
0: I remember so, yeah. Red Bull at at our retreats, and look at Red Bull now. Won the what? Yeah. Won the um? You know, it's where um? What's his name from Tommy Hilfiger's kid? Let Lauren Stroll races. Remember Lauren Stroll? Remember Lauren yeah. Stroll yeah, yeah. from Tommy Hilfiger? Yeah. His yep. kid is one of the racers. It's like um, the most expensive race car sport in the world. What's it called?
1: Yeah, F1, Formula yeah, 1. Yeah,
0: Formula 1. Okay, there. Yeah, yeah. From you passing out Red Bull to the music industry, they just took the Formula 1 crown, you know, the most expensive sport yeah. in the world. I mean, Red Bull yeah. is has broken every barrier you can imagine. And I remember sure. having it at the bad boy retreats, drinking Red yeah. Bull and vodka with security guards that were like 350, 6'2", um, yeah. singing R. Kelly, I Believe I Can Fly, and letting yeah. the balloons in the air. Yeah. That's
1: right. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I digress. So you were doing that for, for buzz tone, but then you saw, you saw white space in, in kind of like the recovery and energy. Tell me no,
1: what happened is I I had a failed deal that I put together and that was always about um, like, how do we leverage the celebrity to be the market maker? Like how do we, like who is, who really can drive that market? So the supplement manufacturer, uh, God rest his soul, Mel Rich got introduced to me and he's like, Hey, I want to make supplements for the urban, urban community. No one's addressing that market. Oh. And he's like, and I'm going to have, um, I still talk to him, this guy, Mark, um, uh, he was Mary J Blige's trainer. And oh, then he okay. trained Puffy a little bit. Yeah. Mark, uh, great guy, Mark Jenkins. Okay. He goes, I'm going to have Mark Jenkins as the face of it. And I'm like, who? Yeah. He's like, Oh, he's Mary J Blige's trainer. And he trains puffy. I'm like, who i have no i've never met him i don't know and back then social media didn't exist so unless i physically was at the gym with him or he hung out with him then that's the only way i would know him and i didn't either i didn't have either of those experiences it wasn't a knock on him and i'm like nobody knows that guy i don't even know that guy and i'm pretty close to those two people in some capacity like i would stumble across him if i was I said, no one knows any real trainers because they didn't have a platform then. Right. They didn't have TV shows. They didn't have social media. They weren't, you know, in in style, like, you know, look who's training Kim Kardashian.
0: If anything, there was like a VHS VHS tape that maybe one or two got out.
1: So I'm like, if you really want to speak to this audience, there's really one kid that's authentic, that's about to be a monster. And he, I, I believe he really takes supplements because this guy works out like an animal, his body and his, his body is his temple. And I said, it's this kid 50 cent, and he has this whole crew called G unit. I said, actually, G unit supplements would be really cool with the brand name. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll trust you. Like, tell me more. And so I break it down. So then I call, you know, God rest his soul, Chris Lighty. And I said, does 50 like supplements? He's like, yeah, he loves them. I said, I think it's a big category that could be disruptive. No one is doing any lifestyle marketing. It's all about like gold gyms and meatheads. When the truth is most people want to look like they just came out of prison. Huge <laughs> arms, like chiseled yeah. back, no legs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, yeah. that's what they want to look like. I want to look like that. Right. And 50 looked like that. Yeah. So, I'm like, how cool would it be to create G Unit supplements and have like a protein powder for pop culture in the urban market? And he goes, Oh, I think 50 would love it. So, got the meeting, set up a 50 50 joint venture, got even 50 in advance. Like, it was a crazy deal for him. All he had to do was promote, market, it, and throw G Unit on it. And in typical hip hop fashion, he did not make it to the last meeting. He was stuck in New Jersey and leaving for the next day for Europe for three months. So, of course, I knew this was going to happen. Mel's like, I can't be in business with a guy that doesn't show up to a meeting. That's important. Shows me he's not committed. Yep. And so I'm like, damn, right on the one yard line once again, and they find a way to mess it up. So I was just commiserating with John actually McDonald and, you know, we just were talking and just like, well, why do you need the hip hop? Why there's a white space? Like there's no healthy energy product. And we just started talking amongst ourselves. Oh, wow. And then I'm like, well, I got the guy that can make it. And, you know, and the whole idea was, let's treat it like a non-traditional brand. Let's treat it like a fashion brand. Let's treat it like, let's sell it in hotels and, and non-traditional channels, like treat it much more like a luxury, an affordable luxury health product yeah. the way that, you know, pro- you know, um, Bloomingdale's will have health products in like a specialty section. Yes. So that was, uh, that was our mission. And we thought the hotel, hotel channel was a great channel to penetrate because people were on the go and traveling. We thought airlines. We thought, you know, of course, high-end gyms like Equinox. So our first client was the W. Our second client was Equinox. Then we got Nordstrom's in their E-bar. And then we got Virgin America. And so we just started putting it in all these high-profile places. But it was really a small little brand. It was really... Yeah. It really, started
0: out as a powder, a power, pa- a yeah, powder pack yeah. that was all natural, and it was energy and um, recovery ready drink. You just mixed it with yeah. water, and you could buy it anywhere. But you made a boutique. I remember that it was really incredible in all the flavors, and then you expanded it into other supplements and you were able to explain your distribution. In fact, you won in 2019, BevNet uh, named eBoost the best new product of the year in 2019. And now you're over 4,000 locations nationwide with uh, celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and Hugh Jackman. And of course, Diddy uh, for you know saying that it's the best thing out there. So I think that that's amazing.
1: Yeah, so we were lucky we were able to get the hand product in a lot of good people's hands. And, you know, Oprah put it on her o favorites list twice. Yeah. And then we we're constantly, you know, like Madonna would buy it and give it to all of her dancers and bring it on tour. Shakira would do the same thing. You know, Kobe used to love the product. I used to send it to him. So we had a lot of professional athletes and just lifestyle people that love the product because it really did give you that healthy lift of energy yes. and then all your essential, essential vitamins and minerals. And then we also would put a focus component. So you really felt alert when you took yeah. it yeah. and no crash. So it was really about the efficacy of the product that got people. And then it just felt like it was kind of like a boutique little brand. So it really felt niche and felt, you know, like they discovered it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's fantastic. And um, as much stamina as it gives me when I take it, well, then what happened next in our lives together was the housewives. (laughs) And I don't know that Ibu's gave us enough stamina for that (laughs) in three shots and a powder drink. But what was so interesting and crazy is So for my, I had my business at the time. I was also, um, you know, an entrepreneur and I was running my fashion business. And of course, Kristen, those of you who know Josh's beautiful wife, Kristen is exactly that. And she's an amazing model. And so I, Brought her on to um, promote my business, and we became friendly. And you know, the, uh, we would go out as as uh, husband and wife, me and Jonathan and Josh and Kristen, and we would just gab and get to know each other. And then on one f- fateful day, Brandy Glanville, who um, was on LA Housewives, is one of Kristen's best friends from back in the day. They modeled together for a hundred years, yeah. and they've been friends for a hundred years. And Brandy said to Andy Cohen, "I think that Kristen Takewood makes you a great housewife," and it just so happens I had never being on the New York side. I was always trying to bring housewives to the table, but I was very focused on a diverse. Um, addition to the to the staff and, and to yeah. the cast rather I was like yeah. br- black and brown people to join the yeah. the, the the staff cast because I couldn't believe that we didn't have it and Kristen it's like you know vanilla yeah. you know what I mean so I didn't even think about her until Brandy did and then Andy asked me about it and I was like oh my god this is perfect because There was authenticity in it. First of all, she's an incredible human being. Second, we had a true authentic relationship, which I believed was important for the housewives. And at the time, Kristen really didn't have anything to promote other than being a model, but we've never even talked about this. Did eBoost come into the conversation of to do it or not to do it? We never even talked about that when you and Kristen decided to do the housewives. Of course it did. Yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, it basically fell on her lap and selfishly, I'm like, oh, what a great platform to promote eBoost. Yes. And I remember Andy saying, listen, this will be ugly for you just because it's the nature of what this is. He goes, but you'll get a lot of free promotion for eBoost. And he said <laughs> it that like season it. <laughs> one, he said, so you better have thick skin yeah. uh, and, but you'll get a lot of promotion for eBoost. And so me being naive and a little bit ignorant to the fact, I'm like, oh, great. It'll be fine.
0: Yeah. And it was until it wasn't really, you know what I mean? I mean like-
1: when you sign up for those shows, you better have thick skin and they're not shows to make you feel good. They they want tension yes, and they want division and they want anger. And it's, you know, it's um, it, they don't want to see a bunch of people having a good time and laughing. That's not what brings people into the show. Nope.
0: And isn't that a shame, but it's, you know, it's true. And I am, I'm always good for a little drama here and there, but I also really enjoy watching people get along and watching people laugh together and have a good time. I wish he had said to me what he said to you, because he didn't say that to me. He was like, we're trying to change the show and raise the bar. I was like, yo, that sounds great for me. Sign me up. It was interesting for me to, to do the show and then have the experience that I had with you and Kristen. And, you know, for me, it was one thing watching myself get beat with the editing stick or something be untrue in an edit about myself and it was like whatever but when I saw you in an edit that was not fair in my opinion or made you look as like you don't who you are something like someone you're not I really got mad at that I remember you you probably remember I was very quick to defend you you know all the time because I know you so well as a person through for over 20 years and I know who you are as a person and I know the stuff that you would do and I know the stuff that you wouldn't do and so like for example Kristen had a a priority to get you to film with her because showing the family and at the time they actually had spouses on the show um you know and and so but you were running your business and so they could get you on an edit saying Kristen I can't goddamn talk right now and you look like some shitty abusive husband you know what I mean it was so it was just it was crazy how did how did you feel about that did you feel mad when you saw me edited in the wrong way that didn't show me the light I am like how did what you feel about
1: that? I mean, I hated it, obviously, because it portrayed me in a way that I'm really not. But I yeah. but I also looked at some of the things and I go, you know what? I did sometimes talk down to Kristen where I didn't intentionally talk down to her, but I could see how it would come off like that. Yes. So in a weird way, it actually was beneficial to me because it made me think because you don't often get to see yourself in a mirror. And right. so you don't. And so I right. saw how I reacted in certain situations. And I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to talk to her in that tone. My intention was not to speak to her in that tone, but ultimately that's how it came right. off. So it did give me some self um, acknowledgement and like how I didn't want to come off. So it was helpful yeah. in that sense. Cause I'm not perfect. Right. I have a temper no. and I could, I could blow my fuse. So it was like looking in the mirror. And so I learned from some of it, which was fine. Well, but what I awesome. do like is when, you know, I would say a joke, And she would laugh and then they would cut to her crying. Yes. That's actually not what happened. Right. Exactly. She's like, well, you know, why don't you ever bring me flowers? I'm like, well, why don't you ever cook me dinner? And that's kind of like, you know, I have a dry sense of humor. And then she would laugh and it wasn't. But they would cut to, he doesn't love me. Right. And I'm like, that's not actually what happened.
0: It's so true that you say you don't get a chance to look at yourself in the mirror like that. And even cut to today after, you know, uh, dealing with Corona and a lot of, you know, I think a lot of us have done some soul searching and self-assessment and that sort of thing. The show, what I, I got labeled sometimes as like a know-it-all or things like that. And what I did, I was, I project a lot on other people to, I want to help them because I didn't have a lot of support as a kid growing up. I had to go figure it out on my own. My parents were there. They were very loving, but I was a seventies, you know, kind of like latchkey kid. And so I always project wanting to help people. And so it turned out, I a know it all. And I did take some self-reflection in that. And sometimes I, I, go, I use a saying that says, you need do nothing. Like just sit and observe and let it all happen sometimes. You don't have to like get into it. And I learned that about myself that I could look pushy where you, you know, recognizing yourself that maybe I was too short and I have to think a little bit about the delivery. So it is a unique experience, but no, when they have you rolling your eyes to someone when that didn't happen, that's just, I I never liked that part of the the TV show because I think there's enough drama given the people they actually put together when Kristen, by the time Kristen joined the show, Instagram had just launched. So Twitter was the only social media real, and Facebook. And then Instagram had just launched. Fast forward to me dipping my toe back in the water until I ran like hell back this season. The difference was, it was unrecognizable to me. You know what I mean? And cancel culture. You know, I want to talk about like what happened even to you with Holly Madison or whatever the fuck that site is called Dolly Madison or whatever, like, I don't even know what it's called. It's so stupid, but because it's like that whole thing too, would be like the last thing that you would do. If you were going to cheat on Chris, you'd be like, yo bitch, I'm, I'm going with somebody else. Like, it's not even your nature, you know what I mean? But let's talk about that because you got on the cusp of, you know, how social media can set fire to shit. You know what I mean? And then I really looked it straight in the face the last time I was on it, you know, where I was like, people were calling for me to be canceled.
1: Yeah, it was the worst. It was without question, the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I based there was was a site that you go on to that supposedly like, if you're trying to cheat on your wife, it was on the front page of the New York Post. I'm having lunch with John and like three or four other guys at Lore. And we and John are working at my computer. And like, what's this Ashley Madison? I said, I know I saw that in the post. Let's check it out. So literally like collectively, and then it's like, I bet your such and such wife's on there. I bet you such and such is on. So we're like, I guarantee we'll know somebody on there. So I'm on my computer. Right. We have to build a profile, but you can't see anybody unless you put a credit card down to buy credits. So I'm like, yeah. I, I'm not hiding anything. We're doing it as a group. You didn't even think I put twice my credit card Let's down. Just... We buy, and then no one has a picture up. No girls that they have like these descriptions, but no pictures. We're like, hey, you sound great. Send a photo hey, you sound awesome, send a photo. It was literally like 15 of those. Right. But no pictures, And I'm like, oh, that place is lame. And then I completely forgot about it. Literally, completely forgot about it. And then like eight years later, there's a security breach. And Kristen even asked me about it. And I kind of vaguely remember we did something on it, but I didn't really want to bring it up. Like, oh yeah, I mean, we checked it out. I'm like, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's without question that... Um, Bravo was behind it in some capacity, right? Because the timing was just too crazy. Like, of hundreds of millions of names, they were able to like put my credit card in my name, and then it just got so blown out of proportion about what actually happened. And then I became the poster child for that stupid site. And the fact is, I 100% went on there with my friends. Yep. We 100% sent a bunch of messages. To and the if girls. I was at
0: lunch with you that day, would 100% <laughs> been involved in the same circle?
1: Of course, it's no different. Like if my friend has Tinder, I'm like, who's on it? Let's see. I'm like, oh, yeah. send him a message from you. It's yeah. just like, you're curious. I've been married for damn near 15 years. And it's just like a sophomore thing guys do. Yes. And it literally, first of all, is the worst thing that it could have ever happened to my wife. So I can't even imagine the embarrassment that she was. And that's what hurts me the most, the embarrassment yeah. to her and to me. I still, because yeah. that's not who I am as a person. Not at all. And you can never, you can never fix that. Right. That's like, it's in the public opinion. And it's, mm-hmm. so that's what hurts me the most is the embarrassment that it caused her. Yeah. And I wish there was a way to reverse that. And and i it's just it was just horrible and it still literally is is a thorn in my side just yes. emotionally just to know that it even happened yeah
0: because you know like if god forbid somebody googles you or something like that it could show sure. up somewhere yeah absolutely 100% <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I made, you know, a microaggression on this, on this show and then, you know, apologized for it, I thought, wow, this is such a great moment because it'll be a teachable moment because yeah. it's a microaggression. People don't yeah. know about it, you know, and yeah. I even know better and I still fucked up like that just shows yeah. that we're going to do that. Yeah. But the outrageous response on social media, it was like, you know, they wanted me stoned in you know, the town square and, you know, hung the racist sign around my neck. And, you know, it's the farthest thing in the world from what I am, but what did I have to look at? It opened up for me, at least that experience opened up something like, okay, what do I have to do? Do I have to lean into a little bit more work? So I just have to keep my mouth open and keep talking and take the uppercut when you make the mistake for change. At least I had something I felt to look to. Yours was like stupid shit where people were just dragging you through the mud. And as stupid as mine was. Uh, there was a a reaction like you said like i did do something and so i was going to have to pay the piper from some people if they wanted to hate me or cancel me or whatever yeah. i'm only human but i don't like where there's fake news yeah. you know what i mean and and this is created and then in today's you know society it lives out there forever you know, yeah. we were able to pull some stuff down off the Bravo site. I mean, I did, we did plead to them and say, listen, yeah. you know, Josh is not even a paid member of the show that, you know, the takemans aren't even on the show anymore. Like get this stuff off your feed, yeah. you know, and thank God they were able to do that. But I just, and, and thank God nothing happened. You know, you and Kristen came out stronger for it. You know, when there's adversity, adversity and scraped knees, you know, you came out stronger for it. Um, but it was painful and I'm sorry that happened to you guys, my friends. Um, but what do you, what would you say to people now? Like, you know, you just have to live your life and just be out there and not too much worry about the, you know, the public opinion. And you know, what are some of the things that, what have changed for you, Josh, over the 20 years I have known you Well, we were like, I'm a little more trepidatious, you know what I mean? Like I was so hungry and power. I'm like a little bit, you know, I don't know. What do you think?
1: I mean, listen, you're always like, anyone can capture the moment and and publish it to the world. So after that, it just made me way more conscientious where before I'd be more free willing, like, you know, I but it just is like, oh shit, you are literally always in the public purview. And at any moment, something could be taken out of context. So don't put yourself in a situation where it could ever be taken out of context. Right. So definitely made me much more aware of that. And the truth is, anytime you go onto a public platform, they want to build you up, but they want to take you down just as fast as they build you up. So you are literally on the firing line for better and for worse. So you just have to be prepared for both.
0: Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. And like when you're in the public opinion, when you're—I mean—and when you're in the public eye, you're in the always going to be in the room of public opinion. And so I definitely have learned to have tough skin. In a different way than when I first joined the housewives and Twitter was like, oh, don't read that stuff, have tough skin. Now I realize, don't believe the hype either. You can't believe other people who adore you versus the people who hate you. You know, all I do is I just try to be me. I try to put out there content that I believe is going to inspire someone or help make their day or share something that I want to share. I mean, it becomes a grind social media. I mean, like the job of marketing on social media, you know, is a full-time job now. It's crazy. Um, how do you feel about that as an entrepreneur? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I know we've talked about sometimes it's like, God, I just want to leave this crazy world behind. But other times, like to work for a big corporation today, what do you feel about that balance?
1: I mean, listen, social media is a necessary evil in a sense. I mean, I use it just to shamelessly promote eBoost because yeah. I, I don't feel like I need to document, you know, every time I have a great meal. Um <laughs> you know, or all the highlights of my life and put a perception like, no, my life's not great every single day. I have challenges just like everybody else, but okay. no one wants to document that. I'm actually really scared about the impact that it's having on our kids. Yeah. I think, I think, and I sit and look at my son who's 13, like he's yeah. literally on his phone all day, just scrolling, scrolling through um, TikTok videos and it's addictive Yeah, and they lose their interest in everything. They have a short attention span. And it becomes incredibly addictive yes. and they become less social. They become less present. And I just watch it in him. I took his phone away the other week and he actually hung out in our room. He talked to everyone. He was present. I'm like, that's the son I want to have. Right. Like I get, you need to have a phone for certain things. Like we got to get in touch with you, but when you're at home, you don't need to be sitting on your phone the whole time. Yes. Totally. So, and it's hard to monitor that, but there's no question. There's unintended consequences at a compounding level, with these kids and their phones and social media, and for their own um, self-esteem, there's there's huge issues. Yes. So it's, we have it's, no it's idea what's going to what
0: look like because it's happening before our eyes. I mean, we handed the thing to them yep. when they were born. And it was such a helpful tool. And we gave them math games and tried to make them brilliant. And now we're just, you know, have these kids that are, you know, stuck on the phone. And I, like last night, um, John and I went out to dinner and I said, because I had to do something for social media. I was, you know, promoting the podcast and I said, I'm going to post this and then I'm going to plug my phone in. I'm actually going to leave it home. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it was like such a big conscious thing yeah. that I was like, I'm going to plug it in. I'm going to leave it home and I'm going to go to dinner and I'm not going to have my phone. So just in yeah. case the kids need us, you bring yours, but let's do the yeah. same, like put it on vibrate yeah. right in your pocket or whatever. Yeah. So we leave for dinner and I'm driving down the road and I look and I t- I subconsciously went and got my phone. Even after I said I wasn't going to bring it unplugged it from the charger base and walked yeah. out of the car with it. It, it walked yeah. out to the car. I'm like, I can't believe I brought my phone. So I know. If that's happening with me, you're right and I'm I'm looking for a specialist to have on the podcast about it because I do think it's a conversation that's happening and unraveling before us and I can make a conscious effort as an adult to to manage my own screen time because I can remember yeah. life without it. If you yeah. never had life without it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have such a good time when I took Jax's phone away. He just, he just harped on me until I yeah. gave it back. I, you know, he didn't really enjoy us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I know, well, what it's crazy. Worked on it, though? It just shows you how addicted they are to it.
0: Yes, yes. And what they're seeing is not real. Like I, ha- I just had a specialist on, you know, like pornography. Remember we were shooting Housewives at that time and the kids were really little and they had my yeah. mother's iPad and they yeah. pulled up porn. Remember that? Yeah, I remember
1: that, yeah. Oh my,
0: see, that's how Housewives could have killed us if they saw yeah. that. We would have looked like crazy parents. But that yeah. happens sometimes with because my, grand- my mother didn't have parental controls on her equipment. Yeah. We had it on ours, right? So that happened to yeah. us, me and Josh. But I just had a conversation with Jacks yesterday because I had a specialist on that said, you know, pornography is not real sex. Yeah. You know, so like, they're they're these kids are watching porn and they think that's how sex looks. Like that's how oh. all you know all sex looks. Like yeah. that is real sex, but it's not how everybody yeah. has sex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like I said that to Jack. Jo- I used that line to Jack's the other day because he said something about porn. You know what I mean? Being a, I'm probably going to be addicted to porn. He said, I go, well, you know that's not sex. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not everybody looks like that, and they're airbrushed, and it's different. And it doesn't yeah. always look like that. He's like, no, no, no. I know that, mom. I know that. I was like, okay, just check him
1: yeah <laughs> his poor it's girlfriend scary. his
0: first girlfriend's gonna have a high standard. So anyway yeah. um, or not. So yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting um, to, to be going through this and to it's just been so refreshing to talk to you about back in the day up until now, you know as business people and now as parents, you know, pretty exciting. So when you're not e-boosting and you're not looking for new v- business ventures and and helping out with some startups, I mean, I happen to know a couple of the startups that you're an investor in and that are no longer startups. And um, one of your, I don't even know if you know this, but one of the girls that works for one of your digital companies just made the 30 for 30 list. Her name is Phoenix. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and she she works for one of your businesses. I'm gonna send you the article, but anyway, Why, I digress. Amazing. I know it's so cool. So when you're not doing that and you're not investing in eboost boost in your time and trying to parent and find all that time, how do you find your freedom today, Josh? Like, how do you embrace that for yourself?
1: You know, for me, like I always like, uh, um, fitness is always kind of like the one thing I do for myself, like work out. So I box a lot. So that's like, kind of like the one thing that I commit to myself and just say, well, I'm going to go do it. I'm not going to have my phone. And I don't want to compromise. Like I want to do it, you know, five to six days a week. Now I'm starting to golf again and play tennis again. So it's like, to me, those are the freedoms. And then I have to commit myself to my kid's schedule. Yeah. So I get just as much pleasure going to my son or daughter's soccer game as I do, you know, participating in the sport myself. So that's kind of my balance now.
0: That's awesome. I love that so much. Well, I have just loved catching up with you. It's been so fun to reminisce about back in the day. You know, I like I said, I don't know if you do. You remember like the first time you met me or anything like that at Sean John, or do you remember? You do. What, 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 what was it?
1: I just remember it was in uh, the BMG building,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you were sitting in the conference room. And I think you, I think that was the day you gave me like the puffer jacket, like uh, the infamous one that I wore forever. You're like, oh, this is Heather. She's the creative director, blah, blah, blah. What do you think of these designs? And I'm like, I love it. I go, I actually really like that jacket. And You slid it to me.
0: I love it. Well, I remember Puffy said to me, because when Jeff and I, Jeff Tweedy and there's Jeff Burrows, who there's a lot of great Jeffs that were in the, in the, in the, in the time, but um, Jeff Tweedy and I would, we would have samples and they would all be missing the next morning. We would have them on a rack because we had like little cubbies and we'd go back the next day and the samples would all be gone. And we would go to Puffy and be like, yo, the samples are gone. He's like, yo, you got to worry when they're not gone because they, yeah, they exactly. were hot. You know, that meant everybody that's wanted right. it. He's like, well, this shit's yeah. hanging on the rack. It's the shit we ain't making. So yeah, so many lessons, so many stories. I got to have you back on in the meantime, so people can find eBoost or if they don't already follow you, tell them where they can find you.
1: Uh, I'm J.M. Takeman on Instagram and eBoost, just E-B-O-O-S-T dot com.
0: eBoost, get it in. Yeah, it does the body good. Well, thank you so much to my guest and my friend, Josh Takeman. I am your host, Heather Thompson. This is In My Heart. Please be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us at Heart Radio, and we'll be back with you. New episode next week. Thanks for joining.